Well, good morning again. Good to see you all here this morning. I almost have a full house. Well, school is back. You happy about that? Maybe the parents are. <laughs> uh, Sarah went back to school. Bringing home homework. Uh, help, having me help her with her math's homework. And, you know, math's kind of irritate me. I wish they'd... I wish these math problems would grow up and solve their own problems, but uh, it, is, it is what it is. We'll get them through the year, and uh, we'll enjoy it uh, as we can. We're in Matthew chapter 7, actually. It's where we're going to start, if you want to turn to there, Matthew chapter 7. This is actually, believe it or not, an introduction to the book of 1 John. So we're going to be turning there a little later. But we're going to start here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 13. I do like to hear the rustling of pages. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Sorry, I need to turn this on. I just remembered. I will start over. Here we go. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who face it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time to be here, to sing these praises to your name. Lord, to hear your word. And Lord, may it speak to us this morning. We need you. We need your word. Lord, we need you to, to comfort the afflicted. For those who struggle with the assurance of their faith, may this be a day that they gain that assurance, that confidence in you, that they can boldly come before you. Lord, may you also afflict the comforted. Lord, those who have a, maybe a false confidence, those who are trusting in something other than uh, the, the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the salvation that He brings alone. Lord, show us some things this morning. Change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there was a story a while back, and I think they made a movie about this. You've probably seen the movie. I think it's called, what, Catch Me If You Can, right? Uh, there was a guy, I think his name was Frank Abagnale, and he got a job, uh, he applied for a job at this major hospital, uh, among other things. He did a lot of other weird things, too. Uh, but he, uh, he applied for a job, got the job at this major hospital as the chief of staff of their medical division. Uh, now, the problem was that he never went to school. He never had a medical degree. He never had any of the credentials that it took to be a big shot in a major hospital. Now, what he had learned is that it's a whole lot easier to act like something than it is to actually be something. It's a whole lot simpler to put on the air and to pretend than to go through school and get the legitimate credentials it takes in order to be a big shot in a major hospital. And the sad thing is that when we look at our churches today, we see a lot of the same thing. Uh, I want to ask you this morning a very serious question. Do you know that you are what you profess to be? Do you know that you are what you profess to, to be? Jesus, even in his day, as we see in this passage, is addressing this matter of false professions. He seems to be saying that, you know what, there are a lot more than you'd think. He seems to be saying, he's talking about uh, professors who are not possessors. He's talking about talkers who are not walkers. He's talking about those who profess to be something when in fact they are nothing. And when you look at the context here in verses 16, 17, and 18, Jesus says that the way you're going to know them is what? Is by their fruits. He says, you look at a tree. Now, I have a problem tell, determining which tree is which. I look at a tree, uh, it, it, it's a tree <laughs> to me. I don't know one from another. But when fruit starts growing on that tree, well, you know that tree by the fruit that is growing on it. So if I see apples growing on it, I know it's an apple tree. It's not a lemon tree. It's not an orange tree. Uh, we have a lime tree. Now, I did have some we did have some dispute whether it was a lemon or a lime tree, but we have a lime tree growing in our backyard, growing one big lime on it. Uh, but we know what kind of tree that is. He says, you're going to know, you look at a tree, you look at its fruit, you're going to know what kind of tree it is. And he says, it's the same way with those who are in the kingdom of God. Now, we just got done saying here in verse 13, that there's this narrow way, there's this hard way, there's this difficult way that leads to everlasting life. And he says there's this wide gate and there's this uh, broad way that leads to everlasting destruction. And in saying this, Jesus is giving us a very serious warning. In other words, you look around, you, you think there are a lot of Christians around. At least a lot of people claiming to be Christians, right? But Jesus says, in comparison, the number actually going to heaven is going to be very, very small compared to the number going to everlasting destruction. And in saying that, 
Why is that? Why does it seem to be that case? Because just as the man who pretended all his life, it is easier to act like something to actually be something. It's easier and even more acceptable sometimes to put on an air uh, than it is to honestly, deep down inside, be what you are supposed to be, what you claim to be. And Jesus said, few there be, that find it. Now that means few, very few uh, there are going to be that are truly, honestly saved, that are honestly and knowingly going to heaven. Very few. So why does it seem like there is so many? Well, Jesus will give many, many illustrations of that. He tells us there are a lot of wheat that grow up among the tares. Uh, Sorry, there are a lot of tares that grow up among the wheat. You know what I'm saying. There are a lot of goats that sneak in amongst the sheep. And a lot of times what we're doing in our churches today, at least what we're trying to do, is we're trying to make sheep out of goats. And you know what? You can talk to a goat all day and it won't ever become a sheep. You can talk to a lemon tree all day long and it won't ever become a grapefruit tree or an orange tree. Those things are simply not the same And it doesn't matter how you dress it up, it does not change the nature of that entity. So what is Jesus trying to tell us about false professions? Well, he says, look, not everything that looks like an orange tree is really an orange tree. Not everything that looks like a lemon tree is really a lemon tree. Not everything that looks like a child of God is truly a child of God. I mean, either you're a lemon tree or you're an orange tree. Either you're a sheep or you're a goat. Either you are a born-again child of God or you are, either, you know, you are a, a saved person, someone who has trusted Christ in their Savior. You're either the real thing or you're a phony. You're either a born-again child of God or you're a fake. You're a pretender. Now, what Jesus is telling us in these verses is that there are a lot of people who will profess to be in the way, who will profess to know the way, yet in fact they are eternally lost. And your works don't mean a thing, and your words don't mean a thing, unless your heart has been born again by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? Nothing else matters. And that's what Jesus is getting to in this passage. In verse 23, he says there's going to be this whole group of people that God turns to in that day, and he's going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Heard a story. I was not in this class, but I heard a story of a class that was going on. I don't know if it was a Christian class or not, but uh, they were discussing the most beautiful word in the English language, and they threw out some words, and they come up with the word mother. They decided mother is the most beautiful word in the English language. I could probably agree with them on that one. Then they tried to discuss what is the most terrible, what is the most ugly word in the English language. And one young man who was a Christian He got up in the class and he said this. He says, I think 
that the most terrible, the most terrifying, the most awful word in the English language is that word depart. Can you imagine anything more terrifying than for God to say to you on that day, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness? And when God says depart, that's it, right? When God says depart, it is final. When God says depart, there's no hanging around. It's over. And Jesus says that God will be speaking to that that word to many people. And that's why it's so important to know that you're saved. To know that you're a a born-again child of God. It's not good enough to guess about it. And I'm telling you this morning, you can know. You can know that you're saved. You can know that you're born again. You can know that you're on on your way to heaven. You can know that you will never hear those words that we just read, depart from me, you that practice lawlessness. Now, most of us here, I'm not even going to go into everyone, but most of us here would say, yes, I am saved. Yes, I am born again. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. But are there some things that we can use to measure that statement? Are there some things that the Word of God gives us to to, to prove that, to test that? And the answer is yes, of course there is. Turn over into the book of 1 John, if you would. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. First John chapter 5 and verse 13. The Apostle John says this, "These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life." So he says, these things I've written so that you can know that you have eternal life. Now, what's he talking about when he says these things? Well, he's specifically talking about the things in this book, right, in the Bible. More specifically, the book of 1 John here that he's writing. He's writing these things so that we can know that we have eternal life. The Bible says you can know. The Bible says you should know. The Bible says you must know, are you born again? I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. That's what I like about 1 John. It gives reasons throughout all the book. 37 times in this book alone, there's some form of that word, know. It's talking about assurance. It's talking about knowing that you're saved. It's It's talking about knowing how to be saved. And I think it's worth checking out this morning. Heard an evangelist one time, long time ago, evangelist one time say something that really startled me. This is what he said. He said, it is my estimation that in our Bible-believing churches, 75% of the members are lost. 75%. You know what he's saying? 
He's saying only one out of every four people in these seats here this morning in this auditorium is truly saved, is truly a born-again Christian. Now, don't look around. I don't think his numbers are, I don't think it's that much. He's just giving his estimate. But then I thought about the number of church members that I've seen get the issue settled, that truly got saved. I thought about the time I was in a Christian university and the number of students there at a Christian university who truly got born again. Now, what was the problem? Well, the problem was that they never really knew. They had never really settled the issue. You see, it's easy, just like the man in the hospital there, to slip into things and to find out that, hey, this isn't so hard. You know, I can play this part. John says, I've written these things to you that you may know. I want you to have assurance, he said. But when you talk about assurance, you know, I think there are basically two problems that you have when you come to the issue of assurance. Go with me to John chapter 3. We'll stick in the book. We'll be flipping around, but it's only a couple of pages. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20. Just a chapter back. And we'll see one of the problems that we might have with this issue of assurance. Because he says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So one of the things that can happen when it comes to the issue of assurance of our salvation, when you ask the question, am I really saved, is that you might honestly be genuinely saved today, you just don't know it, or you just don't feel it, or you're, you're just not sure of it. And the Bible says, of course, if our heart condemns us, Well, we know our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know our hearts? You know what? But it says God knows our hearts. God knows all things. So one of the issues of our assurance is that sometimes we have a false condemnation. A false condemnation. Our heart condemns us when it shouldn't. And we don't think we're saved. And there are some people today who are genuinely saved people. They just don't know it, or they just don't have the assurance that they're genuinely saved. And this book, the book of 1 John, is going to address that. So that's one extreme, and I think 1 John will help you with that one. But there is also the other extreme, isn't there? Now turn with me to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6. 1 John 1, 6, because he says this, 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So as you read through the book of 1 John, you're going to see that he keeps saying things, he keeps making these comparisons. If we say this and we do that, here's the conclusion. He's going to say that throughout the book. And in this particular one, he's saying that there's a possibility that you and I, we say to ourselves, 
I am walking in the truth. I am a saved person. But the reality is that I'm not. Right? One side, there's a false condemnation. And on the other side, there's a false confidence. A false confidence. A confidence that says, I'm saved. I'm walking in the light. I'm a child of God. I know I'm saved. But in reality, we're not. And that is a far more dangerous situation to be in. You know, if you have a false condemnation, you'll get to heaven. You just won't enjoy the ride. Right? If you have a false confidence, you may enjoy the ride, but you're not going to get to heaven. So who provides this assurance? Well, as you read through the book of 1 John, you'll pick up that God can do this in two different ways. First of all, you'll find it in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 24, if you want to turn there. 1 John 3, 24. And in 1 John 3, 24, we'll read these words. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, and, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit he has given us. Okay, he'll say it again in 1 John 4 and verse 13. 1 John 4 and verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. You'll find in the book of 1 John, as well as in Romans chapter 8, that there's a, it's the Spirit who moves us from the spirit of bondage into the spirit of children, in the spirit of adoption, and we cry out, Abba, Father. So it's the Spirit. The Spirit of God is used by God to work in our hearts so that we can come to a full assurance and say, I am genuinely a true believer of Jesus Christ. The Spirit can help us with that and can be the agent that God uses in your life and in mine to bring us assurance. But it's not just the Spirit of God. If you go with me to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10, and we'll also read verse 13. We'll start with verse 10. 1 John 5 and verse 10, which we, uh, verse 13 we just quoted, but we'll quote it again. Uh, starting with verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. We'll move on to verse 13, where it says, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So, we not only have the Spirit's assurance, but we also have Scripture's assurance. The Scriptures say, these Scriptures that say, you know, these were written to you that you may know. You can look at the Word of God, and it says, this is what's true of a true child of God. This is what's true of a saved person. This is how a saved person acts. This is the fruit that a saved person produces. Do I do that? Do I do what it says? Did I believe in the name of 
the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I believe that Christ died for my sins? If I did that, then the Scripture says that's what a believer does. If I've done that, then I can have assurance that I am genuinely saved. So the problem of assurance is a false condemnation or a false confidence. He says, I want to eliminate those in your life. I want you to have genuine assurance. The provider of the assurance, of course, is the Spirit of God and the Scriptures of God. And God will use those two, the, uh, the subjective and the objective, really, to instill in our hearts the confidence that we are genuinely children of God and will cry out, Abba, Father. In fact, God will consistently say throughout the book of 1 John and <coughs> excuse me, also in other books like Romans and Galatians and so on, that God wants us to have genuine, real assurance that we are a child of the King that we really can walk through life. We can wake up in the morning and say, you know, I don't worry about my salvation. I don't worry about my eternal destiny. I know that I'm saved. So it's very important to know. Now, what is this proof? What is proof of assurance? Well, really, it's in the whole message of the book of 1 John. And John will give us a number of things in this book, which are evidences to show us that we are saved. And I like evidence. I like it. I heard it put this way once. If you were taken to court and accused of being a Christian, and it was against the law to do so, and you were taken to court, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, you know what? Where would that evidence come from? All they'd have to do is look up the book of 1 John. Right? And in this book, there are a number of evidences that show us that we are saved, that show someone that they are truly a Christian. Now, what would that evidence be? Well, we're going to look at three different points. I'll give them to you now. Uh, we'll go through them later on, but I'll give them to you now. Roman numeral number one, we have the moral test, and that is the test of righteousness. The test of righteousness. And then uh, number two, we have the social test. That's the test of love. The test of love. And Roman number, number three, we have the doctrinal test. That's the test of faith. So you have those three, the test of faith. And we'll go through these, these again. We're going to start with number one, the moral test, the test of righteousness. What are the tests that God gives us concerning our righteousness? Well, letter A. Here's the first test we see. We're going to find it in 1 John chapter 1 and verses 5 through 7. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And this is what it says. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He says... Uh, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. Well, that's a harsh word. Throughout the book of uh, 1 John, you're going to see a number of times where we're going to see that word, some form of that word, liar. Very strong word. I thought, this is a, this is a significant word. 
So I began to look it up. I, I, I looked it up in the Greek. You know what that word liar means in the Greek? It means liar, right? It means liar. So he says, if, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's the point. If you say you are a child of God, your life will be characterized by light and not by darkness. Your life will be characterized by light and not darkness. And this is really similar to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians verse five, uh, chapter 5 and verse 17, when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Now, being a new creature means that you walk a different way. You talk a different way. Your lifestyle has changed. There'll be a difference in it since you got saved. Now, remember, in the Apostle Paul's, in the Apostle John's day, sorry, there are a lot of apostate Christians running around in his day. And they're claiming, what they're, what they're claiming really was that sin didn't really matter. You know, God is a gracious God. God loves to pour out His grace on us. So you know what? We might as well sin all the more. We might as well sin as much as we can because that gives God a chance to be all that much more gracious. And John is dealing with that. And John says, no, that's not right. He says, if you claim to walk with God and you're still walking in the dark ways of this world, he says, you're a liar. 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you're saved, listen, you'll never be comfortable living according to the dark ways of this world. Why? Because it's not your home. And if, it, you don't fit here any longer. You can be just like the fish who decides he wants to be like everybody else and flop out of the water onto dry land, try to walk on your little fins, but you won't be comfortable. Right? You'll be just like a fish out of water. You won't be happy there. And if you've got an aching in your heart to be accepted by the world and to be loved by the world and to be like the world and to be part of them, and the Bible says, chances are you've not been transferred into the kingdom of God. If you're comfortable in doing that, you may need to take that as a sign that you've not been saved, that you've not been born again. So let me ask you, what has changed? What has changed since you got saved? Let's look at the second moral test, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a, there's the word again, what is it? 
a liar. So not only do we deceive, our, we deceive ourselves, we lie ourselves, but we call God a liar, and his word is not in us. So here's the point. Someone who is truly saved will have a consciousness of sin in their lives, a consciousness of sin, just what sin is, all that sin involves. In the first place, you'll never get You'll never get saved until you realize you're a sinner. You know, someone once said, someone who's never realized they're a sinner has never realized that they need a Savior. And the more you realize your own sinfulness, the more you'll realize your need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for you, who shed His blood for you. You'll realize the reality of of sin in your life. And you may say, well, I thought that was a characteristic of somebody who's lost. No, that's a characteristic of somebody who's saved. Let me illustrate that for you. How many of you have ever worn, I don't know, maybe you were a clown or something. How many of you have ever worn that white makeup all over your face? (laughs) Brian has. Probably while preaching, right? I knew a guy who was in a clown ministry once, and uh, he quit the clown ministry. And I was wondering, I asked him, why did you quit the clown ministry? He said, well, they never take anything seriously. I said, it's a clown ministry. (laughs) That That was his excuse. But you put that white makeup all over your face, okay? And you go look in the mirror, and you smile a big toothy grin. And you thought your teeth were white. Oh boy, but up against the pure white of that makeup, your teeth look yellow, right? It's the same thing with us, right? We like to compare ourselves sometimes. Well, I'm not as bad as this person. I'm okay because I'm I'm not that or I don't do that or whatever. We compare ourselves to each other, but when we compare ourselves to the pure holiness of Jesus Christ, which is, of course, what we were supposed to do, Our lives look all yellow. And when you see sin in your life, take that as an evidence that God's Holy Spirit is within you and He's pricking you and He's prodding you towards righteousness. John says if we don't have a realization of that, well, then it's time to get a heart checkup. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Let's look at the third one. Third moral test. Third test of righteousness. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says this. Now by this we know that we know him. Here's the question. Yeah, here's our question. I want to know. Do you want to know? How do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments? He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Oh boy, that's hard stuff, right? Obedience, obedience to God's commands is one of those tests of righteousness. The Bible says that if I say that I know him and do not keep his commandments, then I'm a liar, 
He says, if I'm truly born again, I'll be concerned about the will of God as it's revealed in his word. I will desire to do everything that God says. Well, you know what? Before I became a child of God, I wasn't concerned about obeying him. I wasn't concerned uh, about God's will. It didn't matter to me. The, what the Bible said didn't matter to me. Why? Because I was not a child of God. But the Bible teaches once I get truly saved, once I am born again, there'll be a difference in my life. And one of those differences, a primary difference in my life, is that I will be concerned about pleasing God. I will want to obey what He says to me in His Word. And if I claim to be saved and I don't have that desire, then the Bible says I'm a liar. Yet how many people, how many people do you meet out there in the streets and they tell you, sure, I'm saved? And you look around them and their lives are characterized by ungodliness? And they don't care at all what the Bible says about church attendance or, or, or giving or witnessing or reading the Bible or worship or any of that stuff. It doesn't matter. They're just doing their own thing. What does the Bible say about this? You know, the, what does the Bible have to say about those types of people? He says they're a liar. He says, those are the people who one day uh, will hear those words that we read from Jesus Christ, depart from me, you that practice lawlessness. Yeah, maybe you fit in with the crowd all right. You look pretty on Sunday morning. You had a lot of people fooled, but you know what? You never did fool God. You never will fool God. Well, let's look at the second test. We've looked at the, the moral test, the test of righteousness. Roman numeral number two, the social test, the test of love. Test of love. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 John 2, 9 and 10. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So you want to know if you're saved or not. Here's what he says is one of the primary evidences. You will love other Christians. You'll love other children of God. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. 1 John 4, 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So you can't put it any plainer than that, can you? He says, if you say that you're a child of God, you will have a love in your heart for other children of God. He says, if you don't have that love in your heart, again, it's checkup time because you've got heart trouble. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11. 1 John 3, 11. 
For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He's going to repeat that again and again through the book. You know, Jesus, our Lord, at one point in his ministry, said, took a, uh, gathered all his disciples together and said, okay, fellas, there's going to be, people are going to be looking at you. And people are going to be wondering what holds you guys together. What is the one thing that people can look at and say, okay, they're Christians, they're believers. What's the one thing people are going to look at and they're going to know that you are my disciples? Now notice he didn't say, well, it's because you wear your hair a certain way or because you, uh, you dress a certain way or because you sing our types of songs or because you read the right version of the Bible or anything else. He didn't say any of that, did he? What did he say? John 13, 35, by this... All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus could have said anything there. You know that? And he said, here is the primary, primary evidence you love one another. And if you don't have love, again, it's time to do a little checking up. Do you love your fellow Christians? You, know, you can't be saved without feeling that love in your heart for other believers. And love will show. Love will show in your heart, in your life, and in my life. And you know what? I may get frustrated with you from time to time. I may get uh, upset with people uh, from time to time. But I've got to love them because the, uh, the Word of God tells me I have to. That'll be in my life. Well, let's look at Roman numeral number three. The last test, the doctrinal test, the test of faith. 1 John 4 and verse 2. 1 John 4 and verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus, has come, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So he's talking about proper belief, proper belief concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first moral test is this, the test of righteousness. And the second test is the social test. It's the test of love. Then we have this third test, a doctrinal test. It's the test of faith. What do I believe? In particular, what do I believe concerning the Lord Jesus Christ? Turn with me now to uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23. 1 John 2, verse 23. And it says this, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You know, it is impossible. You cannot. It is impossible you cannot say, I believe in God, I trust in God, I love God, I know God, and yet I deny the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a test of faith. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? 
Do you believe that He's the eternal Son of the eternal God, the one who was sent by God as the Christ, the anointed one to our world, the one who died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins? You cannot say, I know God, and say, I deny Jesus Christ. And you and I know there are groups of people out there who claim to be God's children. They claim to be Christians even. They'll even use that word. And they'll talk to you about God. They'll talk to you about knowing God, but they'll deny Jesus Christ and who He really is. The Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, here's a doctrinal test. It's a test of what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ? You know, I met a man who once used to speak on personal evangelism. And he said, you know where you've really got to start? He He said, it's in getting them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You know, we always talk about getting them to believe first that they're a sinner and that God loves them and, and so on and so on. He says, you've got to start with Jesus convincing them that Jesus, do they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He says, not until you get past that step can you continue on to the rest. Turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3. 1 John 4, 3, and it says here, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So not only do we have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, but we have to believe that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh. Right? He came, he lived on this earth, he walked on this earth, he was incarnate, and ultimately he died on this earth for our sins. Look at verse, chapter, uh, verse 13 of the same chapter, chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed that the love that God has for us, God is love and He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. He's really saying the same thing, isn't he? Do you really believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh as God's Son, the Savior of the world? That's a short statement. (laughs) A lot of truth in it. He is truly the eternal Son of the eternal God who died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. The doctrinal test. And as we read through the book of 1 John, we'll recognize that he has these three tests for us that just keep popping up again and again throughout the book in different places. Do I I obey God? Do I love the brethren? 
Do I believe that Jesus Christ is all whom he claims to be, all who he's revealed to me to be from the word of God? And if I don't keep his commandments, and if I don't love the brethren, and if I don't believe in Jesus Christ, well then, I have no evidence. I have no proof and therefore should have no confidence that I am a child of God. But if I do, and if I do believe this, these things, if, I, if that is true of me, if that is true of my life, then that is the test of life, isn't it? That is assurance. That is assurance that I am a child of God. Let's pray. Thank you again, Lord, for your word. Lord, thank you for the practical things it gives to us, Lord, that give us assurance of our faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us confidence in our hearts because it's important. Even the Apostle John has told us it's important to know. It's important to know that we're saved. And in having that assurance, Lord, we can have confidence to come before you Confidence to ask things of you. Confidence in our lives to go forth and do what you want us to do. So Lord, I pray that you would work on each and every one of our hearts in in ways that only you can, I can't. Lord, show us some things. Challenge us and change us in this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.